0: Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night.
1: And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant.
0: So, Wit, don't take this the wrong way, but you seem like a mama's boy. <laughs>
1: what? Now, this is a new observation on your end. What is, has what is occasioned this... Uh, uh, interpretation of my life
0: well come on you like live in Kansas City you like used to tape your tape the podcast in your childhood bedroom well that is true um, <laughs> asking asking what it what I'm how I got here I mean that seems like kind of almost confirmation
1: I will say that I have very close I mean my family lives three blocks uh, maybe five blocks away from where I live and I do see my mom very frequently and my dad They are listeners to the podcast. They listen to it even when I criticize things that they don't like me criticizing. But so, yeah, we have a we have a close relationship. She was just over here for Father's Day.
0: Oh, that's nice. Um, I should say, like, I mean, I don't I don't think of it as a derogatory thing.
1: How is your relationship with your mom these days?
0: <laughs> um, this is surprisingly not the psychotherapy episode. Um, I am close to my mom. Um, she lives pretty far from me on the east coast, but um, yeah, I think I yeah I talk to her almost every day, and yeah, she's a big part of how I live my life in the world. So I'm curious. I am because I'm going in a direction with this, and like I said, it's it's not um, not psychoanalyzing our relationships with our parents exactly. Did you notice a difference in your relationship with your parents after you yourself became a parent?
1: Uh that's a very interesting question. I think the the easiest and most direct way to answer that is that my relationship and I don't know how my mom would think about this, but my relationship with her became subordinate to the the thing that I was trying to do, which was be a parent. Um, you know, and and I just you 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 change your focus, you know, from a, from a parent you're wanting you are
0: asking for things a lot of the time. And as a parent, you are giving things. Right? And so that's a difference. That's funny. This is making me think of a podcast friend and my former senior colleague, Charlie Baxter, who talks about request moments in narratives. How many request moments are between parents and children? Anyway, it seems like you and today's guest, our pal Beth Nguyen, will have a lot to talk about in her much-anticipated new memoir, Owner of a Lonely Heart, Beth recollects a sometimes fraught yet always meaningful relationship with her mother, who remained in Vietnam when Beth herself emigrated in 1975. The book explores their relationship and also links it in this really interesting way to Refugeedom, documenting Beth's own experiences with fear and racism.
1: Beth Wynn, who's also written under the name Bic Min Wynn, is the author of three previous books: the memoir Stealing Buddha's Dinner and the novel Short Girls and Pioneer Girl. Her awards and honors include an American Book Award and a Penn Gerard Award from the Penn American Center. Wynn's work has also appeared in numerous anthologies and publications, including The New Yorker, The Paris Review, The New York Times, and Best American Essays. She teaches creative writing at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Beth, welcome back to the show.
0: Hi, thanks for having me. So Beth, in the opening lines of Owner of a Lonely Heart, you write, Over the course of my life, I have known less than 24 hours with my mother Here is how those hours came to be and what happened in them. And those lines are just immediately so gripping. The opening is incredible. When we think of family, we often think of togetherness. And so I think one of the reasons that this beginning is so gripping is because of its seeming incongruity. So you're you're frequently writing about separation and sometimes even a lack of knowledge. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the need to represent silence and separation in families influenced the shape of the book.
2: Yeah, so I guess everything goes back to my origin story, which is that my family and I left Vietnam as refugees the day before the fall of Saigon in 1975. Because I was a baby, then I have no memory of what happened, but I retain so many memories of what happened after. Um, That is what it was like to grow up in a refugee family, in a refugee household in the Midwest in the 1980s. And part of that story is that my mother stayed in Vietnam when the rest of us left, and I didn't end up meeting her until I was 19 years old. So the silences, the gaps, the separations in my family story, uh, including all the ways in which we just never talked about my mother because it was too difficult of a subject. all All of those things informed my thinking about what it meant to be a refugee in the United States. And how that word "refugee" is so often suffused with a sense of shame. So in this uh, in this book, Own of a Lonely Heart," I was trying to deal with that as directly as possible. And um, for me, that meant a lot of acknowledgement of those gaps and silences. So there are spatial gaps in the text, and a sort of direct confrontation of how things are remembered and what is just not even remembered at all, and what we don't even want to remember.
1: At one point later in the book, uh, after you've reunited with your mother, you write that you sometimes have to remind yourself that you're now both mothers. Could you talk about that a little bit more? We talked about this a bit in the opening. Um, What's the relationship between mothering and the desire to be mothered?
2: I feel like I'm still surprised all the time whenever I'm talking with my mother in Boston or more often when I'm talking with my stepmom, um, whom I call mom in real life. I'm always surprised that, oh, wait a minute, mom, I'm also a mom. Because for me, and I think maybe for a lot of people, our formative years are tied to a sense of understanding of who mom is or who dad is. And so when that changes, you know, when that changed for me, when I became a mother, also that involved just this huge shift in perspective, basically. When I stopped identifying with Ramona and started identifying with Ramona's mother, that was the same sort of shift. It just meant being in in more than one place at the same time, more than one person at the same time. I am a mother who's also a mother. I have to remind myself of that. And the reason why it was useful for me in this book is, was because it reminded me that shifting identities is part of what we do in writing all the time, especially in nonfiction writing, that we think about who we are in terms of perspective, who we are now against who we were back then, whether that was last week or 20 years ago, and how we're always more than one person, more than oneself at the same time, which I think goes back to what Philip Lopate calls double perspective, which is something I teach a lot, the sense of acknowledging who we are in the moment now, writing who we were back then and how we have to inhabit two perspectives, two selves at the same time. And so every time we write the past, we're always changing it a little because we become somebody else. Like the mother I am now is a different mother than, you know, five years ago when my children were five years younger. And so it's this constant sense of things always changing, which is very much, you know, part of what being a parent is.
0: So one of the interesting things about reading this book for me is that I had read your book Stealing Buddha's Dinner, which was your previous memoir. And what year did that come out, Beth?
2: Uh, that was fifteen years ago. Horror.
1: So,
0: <laughs> so you've ha- you've actually had like interestingly the opportunity to right there are actually scenes in Stealing Buddha's Dinner that happen again in um in Owner of a Lonely Heart. And as a reader, it was fascinating to kind of to go back to these scenes again. And and I mean some of the going back happens within each book, like, like, I'm not sure of how this memory happened, or this is how this person told this memory, and then this is how I remembered it, but it turned out to be wrong. Or and then then it like 15 years later, you're returning to some of that same material. So what was what was that like to go back and, and even, and did you, did you look at Stealing Buddha's Dinner again? And I mean, I was, I was reading it this morning, you know, in preparation for our chat and was sort of like, Whoa, um, I, (laughs) I mean, I should have, I should have known. And also just it's presented, it's presented differently. And then also certain, certain aspects are of course the same.
2: Right. So that was one of the hardest things for me was having to reread my own work. I don't think any writer wants to do that. But I had to reread that book because I had to remember how I remember things and therefore confront what I was changing my mind about or how I saw things differently. And I think that the whole process of writing this book, Owner of a Lonely Heart, was part of this ongoing reckoning with myself about how the past is not static that it changes all the time because we keep changing as people and that is also very much part of the writing process the rethinking and giving ourselves that permission to change our minds and change our perspective i think is very difficult but also something that we need to do for ourselves not just as writers but as as people to say you know what what i thought once you know that's what I believed back then. And maybe I believe something else now because I know more now. And I, that's good. I mean, if if we thought exactly the same thing 15 years ago um, as we do now, I mean, I would, I would be worried if I didn't want to change anything that I wrote 15 years ago. You know, <laughs> I think all of us, if we look back at something we wrote even a week ago, we want to change and revise because we're constantly questioning what we were thinking, especially in nonfiction, though. You know, memoir is not about transcription. It's not an absolute, you know, this is how it happened kind of document. It is informed by subjectivity. It is made up of uncertainty. It is all about constant inquiry. And that was something I was trying to embrace very much in this book.
1: Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back.
0: Can you give us any specific example of something that you portrayed one way in Stealing Buddha's Dinner and you found that you had shifted for this book?
2: One thing I talk about in this book was the way I remembered meeting my mother for the first time when I was 19 years old. And I realized that somewhere over these years, I had started to remember it wrong. Like I made the memory better than it actually was. Like, my mind wanted to make it smoother. Like, the, the actual way I met her was not as... It was, like, a little less interesting. <laughs> there were some logistical complications involved. But my mind wanted to skip over that and just make it a little bit more, you know, narratively smooth and pretty and cinematic. But in actual life, it wasn't quite like that. And when I realized that in rereading that Student Buddha's Dinner and thinking about what my mind had had wanted and what my former self had written and and what had actually been, and talking to my sister I, I was like whoa, um, what's what's wrong with me which is the essential question I think of so much writing and nonfiction oh, no. like what's wrong with me? How did I get to be like this? Um, I had to wonder and think about why we want to depict the past in the way we do, and what what are what are our goals actually what are our Desires in the act of depiction.
1: I was thinking about, uh, you know, like imagine twenty years from now when our kids are writing their memoirs. Oh uh, no! Oh no! Like they'll all have.
0: <laughs> They're not allowed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they'll all have a Facebook record, and all, and we, as their parents, will all have a Facebook record of all the things that we did and thought during that time. And of course, what one posts on social media is often not reflective of reality. That you are experiencing in your life, right? And so that'll create another dissonance, right? Well, well, Dad, I thought you were really happy on that day that we went sledding. When really I was like grieving some terrible thing that I, you know, hadn't wanted to post about. On you know, I just think that'll be interesting for them to try to negotiate, you know, because the memories of Facebook that are going to be there aren't also are going to change.
2: Oh, so true. That is such a good point, and. Also, the reason why I'm I always teach social media to my nonfiction students as a form of creative nonfiction. Because it is, it's you only we're only getting a little bit of the story. And we're getting a version of events, which is very subjective and heavily driven by perspective. And so our kids, I mean, with any luck, you know, these forms won't exist anymore. They'll just evaporate, and then they won't have anything to write about. <laughs> but when they, <laughs> if they were to look back, and they would get to see the dissonance and or the contrast between what they remembered of it of that day, that was supposed to be you know documented as so happy or not happy, and how they experienced it. I think that would be. Um, I mean, if they have to write,
0: they don't. They Absolutely
2: definitely, definitely not, <laughs> <laughs> which I would discourage.
1: I think it'll be interesting and smart. Somebody's going to write yeah. a really good like way of using like yeah. old, you know, like it, it could. And, you know, people also don't always portray happy things on Facebook. A lot of times people write complaints over and over again, as I see in <laughs> my feed. Right. And maybe that maybe some young writer will investigate the complaints of their father or mother as being true or not true. I think it'd be interesting to anyway. Speaking of the way technology affects the way that we use memory, you know, when you uh, you mentioned being a refugee and coming to the U.S., that was before any of these devices, the Internet. And you write about, you know, and so, you know, without the community, and, and it was hard to find people to help you, right, Your and your family. Without community help, your family had to learn things the hard way, like how to not throw boiling water on a frozen windshield, how to deal with the cold, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, these days the world is forever surrounded by the Internet, and you can Google stuff, and you've got Facebook. so. How do you think that's affected the refugee experience for people coming into the country today?
2: You know, I would hope that the experience of resettlement now for refugees is made so much easier due to accessibility of communication and knowing that communities are easier, uh, therefore, to become part of. And I think that's true. But at the same time, it, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I wonder how much it helps the other aspects because it's still incredibly difficult to get entry and resettlement in the first place, harder. And all the other aspects, uh, displacement, trauma, loss of home and family, you know, dealing with that constant essential American need, need or demand to fit in, all of those things still need to be contended with. And the fact that so many people tend to lose interest in the struggle early on, And so you know the first six or eight months might might be like okay I'm gonna help you're gonna get a lot of help you're gonna get a lot of support but then after that you're on your own which is kind of what the federal government does you know you should be self sufficient within a year basically um, which is ludicrous and then what I'm always thinking of the long the long afterward the the long consequences and for me part of my refugee experience is tied up with being. Gen X, basically, which is, you know, the generation that remembers life before the Internet and got to have childhood before the Internet and understood time and communication in a way that was not governed by such fast communication, it was in fact more governed by silence and distance. And so I think about that a lot and how that still occurs in an unemotional and psychological level for people, even though it seems like we should have, you know, all the ability to get help. I think a lot of people still just don't.
0: I mean, in a policy world, you would talk about like donor fatigue, right? Yes. Right. Like the, I'm sorry, your cause, I'm just bored of your cause, um, which is like awful, but this is, this is a term that is kind of used in, used in the policy and nonprofit worlds that are associated with this. Um, thinking about your story, I was also thinking about conversations, um, that we've had and will air about things like, um, you know, these days, I think in the past two years, there have been a quarter million unaccompanied migrant children into the country mm-hmm. and mostly Central America. And so, you know, you came with with one parent without the other. And then also the recent story about the tragic boat disaster in Greece, where I think at least 81 people have been confirmed dead and over 100 more rescued in the hospital. And then because of the re- s- recent, the submersible incident that resulted in the the tragic deaths of five people who had gone kind of looking for the Titanic wreckage, right? And people were kind of held by that story in a way that they were not by, I mean, a number of recent mm-hmm. refugee stories involving people on boats, involving tragic deaths or difficult passages. So privileged stories are getting representation. And at the same time, the whole narrative around refugees and around migration is changing. The number of refugees is going way up.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And there's, you know, maybe arguably, I don't know that actually the stats to back this up, but there's like some return to previous methods of migration, like boats, which were common before. And then maybe for a while, we're not, we're not the most common way to go. And and I'm curious about how you think writing about the refugee experience, both creatively and critically has changed in this period of time.
2: I think what you're saying, but what you were saying before about fatigue is so, real so unfortunately sad and real the sense of people just having a limited amount of attention that they can give to feeling bad and I don't people it's like people don't want to feel bad anymore (laughs) about refugees and migrants they want to feel fascinated you know which is what drives the what was driving the all the attention on the titan submersible submersible That sense of, you know, how, why. But feeling bad is associated with the refugee condition. And to me, that turns into a feeling of shame because nobody wants to make everyone else feel bad. And so all we can do is try to bring more of those stories into the light. And I think that it has happened a lot. There's been a, you know, really increased amount of creative work emerging from writers who have experienced uh, refugee-ness and displacement and migration. And because of those stories, I think that there's less of a feeling of needing to hide or to fit in and more of a, of a sense of this is how we can complexify the American experience. And, you know, that old question of identity that's behind so much of literature becomes also more complicated when we allow ourselves to pay more attention to the stories and and not just the news. And I do think that's part of the reason why literature is so necessary is because people get tired of this idea of news, but we need to read stories.
1: Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. You mentioned the anti-Asian hate crimes that occurred during the pandemic because of propaganda and misinformation about COVID uh, and Trump's habit of calling it the Chinese flu or the the China flu. Uh, You point specifically to the shooting in Atlanta that resulted in the murder of six Asian women and two Asian men. This this violence served briefly as another kind of spotlight on the way national rhetoric can directly result in brutality and devastation. What kind of rhetoric do we need to do to heal from that kind of damage?
2: I think the perpetual foreigner stereotype is so stubbornly pervasive in the United States. It seems to lie dormant, but it pops up again quickly whenever there's a crisis point, as we saw with COVID. And to me, that is a place where we need to be paying attention to rhetoric all the time, not just during crisis. And what I what I actually think is that that rhetoric needs to be understood and used by people who are not just Asian Americans or people of color, but you know paid attention to all the time. Right now, if in a moment of calm, is when we should be talking about it in normal conversation, so that we all know about it, not just you know in moments where we're like focusing on racism. I think that there's too much of a a tendency I think in American education to say, this is what we're talking about diversity, or this is the writer of color we're going to be dealing with, or this is Asian American month. And I mean, I I understand the purpose of that. I understand the need for that. But what if we talked about issues, you know, without any particular reason, but because these are topics of conversation that we should be having, just like we're talking about climate change.
0: And this is, um, it's interesting, what you're saying is making me think of, I have a friend who I used to do a bunch of activism with who would always talk about, trying to do things not as reactive, but mm-hmm. rather than waiting, waiting for the moment when you needed to react to try to set the terms of the conversation yourself, um, which is also, I think, a narrative habit that's difficult to develop.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So you mentioned all different types of racism, not just kind of blatant racism, but the book also has I mean, in some of these, honestly, Beth, they're like, like so visceral that I was like, this is really hard for me to read because you capture it so vividly. Microaggressions, the aspects of U.S. culture that can hurt you more quietly um, over a longer period of time. And you have a, uh, an excerpt that reflects some of this. And I wonder if you would read it for us.
2: Sure. This is a passage that takes place in the 1990s and involves the musical Miss Saigon. At the time, I had a boyfriend named Evan or at least I call him Evan in this book. One winter, Evan's dad and stepmother invited me along on a family trip to Chicago to see Miss Saigon. It was was the space between Christmas and New Year's and Evan and I were back home after our first semesters at different colleges. I had heard of that musical in the way I'd heard of The Phantom of the Opera, but knew little about either. The only theater I'd seen had been school productions I didn't know how hugely successful Miss Saigon had been in New York and London or that Chicago was its first stop in the touring production. The discomfort I felt about the subject of Vietnam was the same I had faced with so many war movies like Platoon and Full Metal Jacket, the self-consciousness about non-Vietnamese people turning and looking at me. My response at the time was always the same, say nothing and pretend not to notice. We took the Amtrak to Chicago, the first time I'd ever been on a train, and the first time since childhood that I'd been to Chicago, and I sat many miles trying to read a book while listening to Evan's stepmother discuss with their 20-something daughter what they would wear to the theater. The stepmother said she had brought along a sequined catsuit as an option. I didn't know what a catsuit was and pictured a furry costume. Back then, in the era of grunge, I didn't care about clothes and would wear the same plaid shirt several days in a row. I had nothing fancy and couldn't afford to go to buy something. Even though I'd read and reread The Age of Innocence with its pivotal theater scenes, it hadn't even occurred to me to ask what I should wear. Miss Saigon was staged in a theater that Edith Wharton might have approved of. The ceiling of arcing lights, the upholstered seats, the carpeted aisles the color of actual blood, and the thrilling sight of box seats where countless deals, flirtations, and disappointments surely had gone down. Evan's stepmother wore the cat suit after all, and it looked like a bodysuit, or what we called leotards back then, paired with a long velvet skirt. I kept my coat on to conceal my plain pants and sweater. I was completely unprepared for Miss Saigon, and was grateful for the darkness of the theater. Like everyone in America, I had seen plenty of racist Asian stereotypes in movies and shows. Mocking accents, jokes about eating dogs, 16 Candles... But it was so much worse when it was live right in front of me. The reduction of Vietnamese characters into sexualized women and evil men speaking in broken English. All these years later, I still know the chorus of The Heat Is On in Saigon. One of these slits here will be Miss Saigon. Based on the also racist Madame Butterfly and written by two white men, Miss Saigon is about a Vietnamese sex worker, but also virgin, named Kim, who falls in love with a white soldier named Chris. He says he will take her to the United States, but ends up leaving without her during the fall of Saigon. A few years later, he returns with his white wife. Kim is now an exotic dancer, which is the phrase that people used back then, and thinks that Chris will bring her and their young son to America. Of course, Chris stays with his wife. In the final scene, Kim kills herself so that the white couple can raise her son as their own. This was the early 90s. I had one semester of college behind me and a barely nascent sense of awareness about issues of race, racism, and representation. I had dealt with aggressions and microaggressions all my life, but had rarely spoken about them. I could barely describe them to myself. I was still, I was still learning about exoticism and appropriation and the depths of empire and colonization. What I knew mostly was the feeling of shame, so familiar, so entrenched, yet I couldn't have explained it if I tried. The shame of the foreigner, who is so easy to dismiss. The shame of knowing the standards and defaults of white beauty, white knowledge, white rules, and feeling the violence of them, but not the freedom to name them. There's no subtlety in Miss Saigon. Kim must be eliminated so that her half-white son can have an American life with a white man and his white wife. Kim is a sex object and everything about her life, her body, her story is disposable. It was not lost on me that I was in that theater as a guest of my white boyfriend's family, and I had no choice but to watch the whole thing. I started crying as the show ended. I couldn't stop myself, and it was all so humiliating, the musical and the crying. Evan and his family thought I was moved by Miss Saigon, which was unbearable. But I let them think that because it was easier than saying anything closer to the truth, which I couldn't have articulated anyway. Evan's dad and stepmother had paid for everything, the tickets and the train and the hotel. So all I could say was thank you. I wonder now if they thought they were giving me the gift of a show that was, that was related to my culture. I wonder if they thought they were somehow helping me.
1: Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Thank you very much. You know, I have never seen that musical, but... You don't need to. God damn, that is such an insane plot description.
2: Don't, don't, don't see it.
1: <laughs> uh, I wonder if you could say something, if you could say something to Evan or Evan's father and stepmother now or to your younger self, what would you say about that experience? What would you tell your own children about an experience like this?
2: I mean, the truth is we just didn't have... The language for that back then, not where I was, not where I lived. And when I look back, I don't even blame them exactly. Do you know what I mean? I'm no I don't mean to say that they did something horrible to me. They did do something that was questionable and we probably shouldn't have done that, but nobody knew any better in a weird way. And I do not mean to excuse any of it, I'm just trying to understand it. And I think it is much more interesting and much more useful to try to understand than to blame. And I think part of the reason I write and part of the reason I read is to understand, to figure out that gap between what we didn't know and what we learned later. Not that there even needs to be a sense of forgiveness or anything like that, but just a sense of wonder even. Um, it can be good enough, the sense of like, what, what were we thinking? So like, you know, if Evan reads this, which he very well, very well might, I mean, I haven't talked to him really since college, but I know where he is. <laughs> like, I know where he lives. And he's, he's a really good guy. And I don't blame him at all. No, I definitely don't. We didn't know how to talk to each other back then. And it's part of the responsibility of the person looking back in writing to make sense of all of that. So I think if people can look back and learn, that is enough.
0: And what would you tell your own children about experiences like this? Because one of the things that is attached to what you're saying about language and naming is agency, right? If you can name it, maybe you actually can stand up and walk out of the theater. Um, Like when I look back on my own experiences adjacent to this, I don't want to say like this, Um, what I often think is, but I, I actually did have a choice. I actually could have done something and here is an option that I couldn't have named for myself at the time, but maybe I can name it for my future self that I can actually excuse myself for like, that I can depart as one, as one option.
2: That, those are really good points. And it took me a really long time to learn that. It took me a really long time to learn that sense of, I have a choice, you know, agency. Whoa. I can. I don't have to just sit here and take this, and I hope that our children learn better because of us. And so when my conversations with them, not about this in particular, um, about Miss <laughs> um but about so many things that come up in the news and so many you know things that happen at school, a lot of them do center on, on this issue of agency. And they are about this idea of what it means to use your voice and speak up. Like, you, we don't have to settle for anything. We don't have to sit back. We don't have to just wait and hope somebody else takes initiative, that we are actually there and involved and we're part of the process. And um, it's our own responsibility as well to speak up, not just for ourselves, but for other people. This is my, my big hope for, you know, Gen
0: Z, I want to wrap up by talking a little bit about a craft because this actually might've been pretty recently. You and I were talking and you reminded me or told me that your MFA was in poetry, which somehow I just always forget. Yeah. It's a secret.
2: Thanks a lot.
0: (laughs) And I'm always like, whoa. And I just, I don't know. I imagine you in poetry workshop, which to me is an, I've never been in a poetry workshop in my entire, in my entire life. I've never been in one. And so I, I imagine you in this space that is just kind of, a mystery to me, and you also, of course, have written another memoir, "Stealing Buddha's Dinner," which we've spoken about, as well as the two novels. Um, and in this memoir, and in this conversation, you, you've noted how sort of some of the particularities of nonfiction. And in the memoir, you, you talk about how you actively have to figure out what is yours to say. I'm curious about what that meant over the course of drafting this book, because there are memories in which, of course, there are other there are other participants, and and what different kinds of freedom have you felt in different genres? Since you're really well versed in all three of them.
2: The poetry thing, I don't know what to say.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm always like, I just can't imagine.
2: (laughs) I love reading poetry. I always have, and I still do. And it was really useful for me to focus on poetry and write it and learn how to understand it in a meaningful way. Having said that, part of my MFA in poetry experience was understanding that I am not meant to be a poet that I love it, I love reading it, but I'm better suited to writing prose. But there is a really strong natural relationship between poetry and nonfiction, especially poetry and memoir. That's probably why so many poets end up writing memoirs and nonfiction because the discursiveness, the fragmentation, the getting to jump around in memory all of those aspects in nonfiction happen in poetry and, and vice versa. And for a lot of people, writing poetry is, you know, writing nonfiction. Um, but you know, so that there is a it was an easy and you know logical step to go from one to the other. But I also think that, you know, nonfiction, you know, memoir particularly is in a very different place now than what we were thinking of nonfiction memoir 20 years ago or so you know i think back then the dominant mode was was confessional narrative and now it's much more about narrative and and reflection at the same time much more about a conscious and self-aware questioning about what we're doing and that's probably why there's been such a a terrific rise in the personal essay i think nonfiction has been dealing with ethical questions about you know why am i writing this why me why now what is you know mine to say We've been dealing with this for years now, and poetry and fiction and every other creative genre needs to deal with those questions as well. And all of our work is made better when we question why we're writing what we're writing.
1: When you change, uh, you talk about uh, changing your name from uh, Bick to Beth, you note that it's a change that, quote, just feels like a bit of space where you can direct how you are seen rather than be directed. Um, It seems as though taking Beth as your name for the moment is like a way of controlling your narrative. Is writing a memoir also a way to control narrative in general? I I think the answer to that is yes, but I'm asking the question anyway. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Uh, I I think in the sense that all writing is a way to control narrative. Um, So I wrote a piece for The New Yorker a couple years ago about going by Beth, and I got more responses and emails to that one piece by far than I ever have for anything like combined and some of them were really most of them were super supportive and nice and people telling me their very intimate stories about their own struggles with their names and some people were just super mad at me and I what I just what I've always known is that it's such a fraught issue changing our name for some reason people take it really personally and I find this really fascinating because it turns out there's a huge responsibility involved in bearing a name because somebody else has given it to us. That we have, There's so much familial and cultural, social obligation attached to it. When we change it, people can get really mad because it feels like, or can seem like some kind of betrayal. And I wanted to sort of deal with that directly. When I changed my name and started going by Beth, I wanted to make it clear that this was not like a, a concession to American life. It was a second identity for myself. It was not for other people, it was for me, in other words. And it has been different, my experience. Living day to day has been different, easier uh, as Beth. And I wanted to write about that and explore it. And what I actually think is that in the future, people, and I kind of hope this is true, because I would like this to be the case, that in the future, people, will not be so caught up in the name that they have or were given and that maybe people will just change their names five or six times in their lifetime because we can, because we change as people. And maybe I no longer feel like I'm going to be Beth. Maybe I'm going to feel like somebody else. Maybe we outgrow names. Maybe we decide to be somebody else and therefore get to have a different name. Why not? If we're talking about agency, if we're talking about controlling a narrative or having a sense of control over our own narrative which is what we all want to do why not start with our own name
0: I like how this history is contained kind of even in your bio because you know I have um, most of your books on Kindle and I was running the search in my library and searched for Beth and then was like where is where some of the books are not here and then I was like <laughs> wait I know the reason for this I have to search by last name um, and so I mean also one of the things the internet Makes possible is that it is very. I mean, I don't know. It's trackable. If someone changes their name, you can still, you can follow that arc. Yeah. It's not. It's not always an attempt to be covert, which maybe was the prevailing assumption before. Mm
2: -hmm. And maybe if we do want to be covert, that's okay too. Like people have their reasons.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Me among them. (laughs) Beth, it's always such a joy to have you with us. We really appreciate your being here, and congratulations on the beautiful, beautiful memoir. Listeners, absolutely don't miss Owner of a Lonely Heart, which is out now. Beth, thank you so much.
2: Thank you both so much. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Rachel Layton. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction in the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please, go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen,
0: find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at
2: FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of this interview at our own
0: Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel, and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading.